Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and today's episode is on making money and justice with Kelly Deals. Kelly is a feminist educator, a writer, a coach, and she specializes in feminist marketing for culture makers. She's here to really raise awareness about how the sort of business-as-usual formulas that we learn everywhere, that you see everywhere, actually reproduce oppression. So she develops and teaches alternate feminist marketing tools to help us do it differently and better. I hugely, hugely respect Kelly's work and have learned so much from her. Um, She's truly a culture maker and an amazing human. I found her work through Luna Dietrich's business class that I took, I was going to say earlier this year, but it would be last year now. It's 2021. Okay, so last year. (laughs) Um, And yeah, like I said, I've learned so much from her. I think... I think we can all learn a lot from this episode, whether you have your own business or not, whether you work for yourself or not, Um, but especially for those of you who are listening, who are also um, coaches, teachers, educators, practitioners, facilitators, um, artists, all of those things um, can really learn a lot from this episode. I have struggled so much (laughs) with so many of the things that Kelly talks about in this conversation around questions of that questions that probably many of you are struggling with as well like how do I make my work accessible while also like still paying my rent and my student loans and my health care and all of those things um how do I share my work in a way that isn't sleazy that isn't trying to like trigger people into purchasing something Um, how do I do business in a way that's aligned with my anti-capitalist values? How do I share my work when there is so many, there are so many horrible and violent things happening in the world? All of those things are, yeah, questions that I struggle with so much and yeah, Kelly is here to help us <laughs> with those things. So I'm not going to talk a ton. I really want to get into this interview, but um, I did want to share one thing, which is there's a point where um, Kelly cuts out. You'll hear it. There's kind of like a, a choppiness to it. Um, but what she's saying was it's the same stuff that I teach in my programs. And that programs part, I think, got cut out a bit. So it might feel a little choppy when you listen to it. But that's the only... Uh, tech thing that we had. So what we talk about in this episode, we talk about having a thriving livelihood while not replicating oppression in our business. Kelly's journey of really waking up to the female lifestyle empowerment brand and what the female lifestyle empowerment brand is. And spoiler alert, it is literally everywhere. (laughs) Not exploiting ourselves in our own business deprogramming the cultural authority voices in our heads, deconditioning ourselves of capitalist instincts, working with our money lineages, common business practices in wellness and coaching that are super exploitative, and what to do instead. 
marketing privilege and performing to create and grow a business, creating affordability and accessibility in our work, and why doing business is not the same thing as promoting capitalism. That last part, so important. I really appreciated that part of our conversation. Um, and in talking about money lineages, I just wanted to clarify something that I say in this conversation um, when re-listening to it and editing it. It didn't totally come through, um, but I just want to clarify when I talk about my money lineage and I'm talking about all of the people who came before me who were poor and struggled a lot, I just wanted to clarify that I did not grow up poor. My parents are the first ones in my family who really came from poverty and working class homes and um, came out of that. So I just wanted to um, yeah, clarify that because when I was listening to it, it kind of sounded like I was saying that I grew up poor and yeah, that's not true or fair to, to say. So that's the only thing I wanted to clarify. And I have two things to share with you before we get into the interview. I made a free healing meditation for ex-religious folks that's really focused around inner child work. I think it's like 23, 24 minutes. Um, and it's, um, it's a really, it's a really sweet and powerful meditation, I think. So it's free. You can check that out and download it at the link in the description. And the Imbolc Breathwork Ceremony is also coming up. It's going to be on February 1st. And this is a ceremony where we're going to work with tending to our inner fire to restore and fortify us through the end of winter and into the coming spring. So if you've come to one of these breathwork ceremonies before, you know we do a bit of grounding. I talk about the invitation of Imbolc and channel a message through the tarot for the group. And then we do a deep breathwork experience to tend to your inner fire. And then you'll also receive a ritual that you can do after the ceremony or the next day or whenever feels good for you. So that link is in the description as well. Hope to see you there if that feels good. And Without further ado, here is my conversation with Kelly. I always like to start the show by hearing a bit about your journey to getting to where you are. And I am so curious to hear from you, like how you have come to this point in your life doing the work that you're doing. Okay, so I am a feminist marketing consultant and my focus is money and justice. I think it's essential that we make both. And when I'm talking about we, I'm talking about a community of culture makers, of people who are trying to shift our culture towards justice, but who need to flourish while we do it. So most of us have marginalized identities. Um, we might have intersecting identities of both marginalized and oppressive identities, but what the position we're in in our culture, we are not supposed to have anything. So if we don't have anything, that is the system working as it should, whether we are women, whether we are racialized, whether we are trans or queer, we're not supposed to have resources. So it's really important to me that right now in this moment that we do get resources and that we are um, living thriving lives. So I don't want to co-sign an unjust situation. <laughs> by suffering. Like I've had enough of suffering. Mm. So <clears throat> it is important to me that we flourish right now, that we have the resources we need to flourish. And I don't think that means then selling out our principles and downloading our oppression onto other people in order to get what we need, which is again, just the system working. So I'm trying to navigate 
How do I have a thriving livelihood that protects me, takes care of my family, um, helps me circulate uh, resources in our communities, and also not replicate oppression in my business? So those are the two, <clears throat> the two poles that I'm always navigating. So I want us to make money and justice. So how did I get here? Um, I have been an entrepreneur for 11 years now. And when I started out, I think that I was trying to embody what I now call the female lifestyle empowerment brand. I took all the marketing trainings that everyone else took and tried to tap dance in a sheath dress and high heels on a stage with long wavy hair, you know, looking super femme, because those are the strategies that we're taught. Basically, the strategy we're taught is be pretty first and build some marketing strategies on top of that. That's how you'll build awareness, get attention, and eventually get sales. And <clears throat> that is what we learn in mainstream marketing from our female lifestyle empowerment brands, from the leaders in our business and coaching spaces. We learn those systems. And those systems are also built on some predatory marketing tactics where we're supposed to leverage scarcity. We're supposed to charge extra for payment plans and you know, punish those who are least able to pay. Like there's a whole bunch of things that we are just taught to do that are normal standard business practices at this point that are oppressive. And those, so those things all go together. And I didn't know there was another way. So I took all the courses, all the marketing training, all the business trainings and tried to do that thing. I tried to implement that formula. And what would happen was I could do it really well for like three months at a time. So I could perform the song and dance and perform the caricature of myself, the femme caricature of myself for about three months. And then I would be exhausted because mm -hmm. performance is exhausted. And then I would disappear for three or four months because I couldn't keep up posting and doing all the things in that character. And so what happened is I was like three months on, three months off, six months on, six months off. I couldn't get any consistency or traction in my business because I couldn't sustain it because the energy it takes to perform is unsustainable. And then I thought, well, there's clearly something wrong with me because I know what the formula is and I can't make myself stick to it. So I must have some sort of upper limit problem. I must be self-sabotaging. I must have a problem with success, right? And what I ended up doing was dropping out of the whole scene entirely. Like I went and got a job as a marketing consultant at a company with $50 million in annual revenue that sold to other businesses. And all I had to do was minimize risk and make the case for the value of the systems I was selling. And it was so refreshing. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have to perform. I don't have to be cute. I don't have to be pretty. I don't have to be charming. I just have to make the case and reduce the risk. That's all I had to do. And it was such a palate cleanser. And then I had uh, my fifth child, my, the fourth baby born of my body, my fifth child. And I reached this like critical juncture in my life, in my career, where it was going to cost more for daycare than I was earning at that job. And it was a good job. And so I was like, okay, well, this is not going to be sustainable. So while I was on maternity leave, I thought, you know what, I need to restart my online business. I need to figure out a way to do this on my terms around my children's schedules, because I cannot fit myself with five children into the corporate structures anymore. Like it's, I've reached a breaking point. And I won't go anywhere in my career if I have to run out the door at 5 p.m. because daycare charges me $10 a minute for being late. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I knew I was like, I, it, it was just no longer sustainable. So I thought, okay, I need to go back to the online world. So I restarted my business um, or I started thinking about restarting my business 
while I was on mat leave in 2015. And when I started coming back online, I started seeing things completely differently. I had been offline for two years, right? I had deactivated my Facebook account. You could not find me online. I was checking nothing, right? And I came back after two years and it was like being out of the country for two years, you come back and everything's familiar and everything's different at the same time. And you're looking at it with new eyes because you've changed. So that's what I was doing. I was looking at it with new eyes. And all of a sudden I realized like, whoa, this is white supremacy and high heels. And I couldn't see it before. And whoa, this is patriarchy in like brand new bottles. And this is not okay. And so I started looking at everything that had been normal to me and that I had been trying to perform with a fresh perspective and thought, this is actually just replicating everything that I oppose. And there's got to be a way to do business differently. And I realized I had been selling out my feminist principles and thought that that was the trade that I needed to make in order to be successful. And I literally was like, well, I'm going to be very unpopular and I'm probably not going to make any money, but I just can't do it that way anymore. I literally made peace with it. Like everybody is going to hate me. And I started writing about the female lifestyle empowerment brand and how it's purported to be about empowerment, but really was just about helping women adjust to oppression mm-hmm. and um, helping some women rise to the trop of an oppressive system while leaving the rest of us in the same position. And I, I was just like, this is, I just started writing about it. And out of that emerged a community. I thought I was going to be like exiled. And honestly, <laughs> the first essay I put out after two years I lost half my list, Hmm. (laughs) like in the space of two weeks, half the list unsubscribed. And I totally get it. This is not what they signed up for, you know, you know, five years earlier. Wasn't what I signed up for either, but there we are. (laughs) You're like, I'm surprised as they are. Right, exactly. Who knew? So I started writing these essays just from this very truthful place of like, there is something wrong with our coaching and empowerment spaces. And this is what's wrong. It's business tactics. It's, you know, Uh, being complicit with systems of oppression, like this is what's wrong. And a community coalesced around that message. And I was astonished. And I started getting a lot of attention. I wrote two essays after being online for two years. And in the space of like two weeks, got 20,000 downloads. And was like, what is happening here? And four months later, I offered a mastermind where we were going to figure out how to market through a feminist lens, how to build businesses based on our feminist principles and oversold. Like I thought, oh, I have 15 spaces and I ended up selling three masterminds of 15 spaces instead of just one. And so we started having this community of practice where we were figuring out how to do business on our terms, on feminist terms, and what that looked like in terms of shaping the sustainability of our lives too, so that we're not working 60 hours a week, so that we're not treating ourselves as human resources to be exploited in our own businesses, right? How are we going to live differently and live into the future that we want and are imagining? So that's where it all came about in 2015. And that was a long story, but that's how I got here. Oh, it's so good. Thank you for sharing all of that. I'm just like, mm-hmm, over here. <laughs> and just that last piece of what you're saying, I have thought about that a lot this year about, okay, I work for myself. No one else is exploiting my labor, but I'm exploiting my own labor in the ways that I'm treating myself in this business and the schedule and life that I'm setting up for myself. It's too much. And I'm not holding space for myself to have the 
yeah, the rest that I want, the schedule that I want, the life that I want, like I want my business to support my life, right? So I've been thinking about that a lot this year and making changes and that's feeling good. Me too. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because it's not just making changes. It's like soul level reorganization. Like mm-hmm. we have to reorganize our internal cosmos because yeah. that those ideas are cultural ideas that have taken up residence inside of us, that we are supposed to be productive all the time, that we are in service to a company, even if it's our own company all the time. And it literally is like unsettling ourselves. And I use that word instead of decolonizing because we're not really decolonizing, right? You and I as white people, we're not turning land back over to people, but we are unsettling, you know, our cycles. Yeah, exactly. I kind of think of it as like the programmed boss inside that's like it's still here yeah Erin that's exactly it there are all of those cultural authority voices inside our heads and we have to get them to be quiet or at least take back seats yeah yes (laughs) mine's in the back seat right now it's not super quiet but (laughs) but it's not driving (laughs) it's not driving okay we're making progress so and it's a it's a journey to like unlearn all of those things. And I can say even, you know, in 2015 and 2016, where this journey really started taking root for me, where I started practicing living and working in a different way and building business practices in a different way. It didn't, it still took me a couple of years to stop treating myself like a human resource. And it's, it's literally something I'm still working on every single week because it's easy to work seven days a week right? There are a million things to do in your business and only so many hours to do them. And so it's easy to let your business and your work creep into every aspect of your life. And at the same time, I love my work, right? So it's not like there's this hard line between work and pleasure. Like for me, work is pleasure. So I get like a lot of joy out of it, but the people in my life don't necessarily get a lot of joy out of me working on Sundays. So I need to like have a balance. Yeah, that's exactly it. I feel the same. Like I love my work, but also I love other parts of my life that are not me working. Like I love going for hikes and I love spending time with my part. Like I love doing those things too. And like, I need to have a life that holds space for all of it. Yes. And that is like deconditioning ourselves of capitalist instincts. Oh (laughs) yeah. Yep. I was thinking about this. I'm reading, this is kind of a tangent, but (laughs) I'm reading this book that's a lot about like the class history in the United States specifically, but there's a lot of like labor history in it. And it's all really interesting. And a lot of it I had no idea about because I don't know what they're teaching in schools in Canada, but they're not teaching us that much accurate history in the United States in school. Um, And it just really struck me about the journey of labor, about how the reason that we have the standards that we have, like 40 hour work week and all of that, it's not because it's like, oh, this is what's good for humans and supportive for humans. It's like, this is what labor was able, labor movements were able to fight for from having to show up to work at 5 a.m. and be there until midnight. Like companies were getting every single thing they could. And the reason we have the standards we have now is because people fought for them, not because like, this is like what we all should all be doing and it's all supportive for every single person. And yeah, that just really struck me thinking about like how I, yeah, think about my business. Right, and fought for it doesn't mean like they agitated it for it in in word, right? It means people were taking batons to heads 
and being mm-hmm. killed in the streets fighting for it. Yeah. Like, yeah, the, anything that we have that's good in life is because underestimated people put blood, sweat, and tears and sacrifice on the line to have it, which is why like remembering where we come from is so important. It's, yeah. it's just so important. We are here because people made literal physical sacrifices, sometimes from terror to make sure that we could be here with what we've got. Yeah, absolutely. And this feels like a good time to ask you about money lineage, like we were talking about before we started recording. And yeah, I would just love to hear your thoughts about that and what it means to you working with like the lineage of particularly women and birthing people in your family who didn't have money and what it means. Right. So in my family, where I come from is my grandfather worked from the time he was nine years old. He drove a milk cart. And then when he was 16, you know, drove a a truck that delivered milk. Um, He was married by the time he was 16. My grandmother had born four children by the time she was 20. She got married when she was 15, had five by the time they were 24. You know, they came from nothing. And my grandfather was also a violent alcoholic. Right. So like that is where I come from. You know, I come from generations of poverty and alcoholism and abuse. And the women in my family were the reasons that all of us survived. And I like I want to hold that and honor that. And that's on my side, you know, so I'm like one generation removed from poverty, real grinding alcoholic (laughs) poverty. And uh, on my partner's side, he's from Trinidad. He was at one point an undocumented immigrant in Canada. And he also comes from poverty and even more pronounced poverty than I do. And he comes from, you know, he's a black man. So he comes from the legacy of enslavement. That is how his people arrived in Trinidad. And when we hold that and, you know, his father was also an alcoholic. So I'm saying all of this is because the women didn't have resources, but were ingenious with what resources they could get their hands on. Like my grandmother would go every Friday, she would walk to my grandfather's employer and collect his paycheck before he got off so that he couldn't drink it up. Right. And, and she took beatings for that, but she had five children she needed to feed and she took it. Right? I'm not trying to glorify the, the horrific things that women have to go through, but I'm just saying women in my family and in my partner's family were ingenious with resources and did whatever they had to do to make sure that everyone survived. And what happened for our family in 2016 was my partner's mother had Alzheimer's. She lived in Trinidad and she went blind. And the reason she went blind was because her caregiver, one of our family members, wasn't buying the medicine for her glaucoma just decided not to. So we went to Trinidad to see about her and to see what we could do to support her. And when my partner arrived there, realized that she was being abused, she was being left alone for 16 hours a day, you know, her medicine wasn't being bought, which is why she went blind and realized like he couldn't leave her alone, you know? And what we did was we sold our house and we moved to Trinidad because she was in such bad condition and that, the Canadian government wouldn't have approved her immigration anyway. And that would have taken years and who know even if she would be alive by the time the papers came through. So we went to Trinidad to be her caregivers. 
at the time that meant my partner had to quit his job. We had to take all our children to Trinidad and I had to be the sole breadwinner. Fortunately, my business was doing good. We had just talked about how that was my business had just taken off and my business was doing fine. So I could work from Trinidad. I could work from anywhere. But what that meant was I actually had to be working seven days a week because I had to replace my partner's income as well. Mm -hmm. And he was the full-time caregiver for his mom who had Alzheimer's and our children, the youngest of whom was barely two. So he had a lot on his plate being a caregiver and I had to make all the money. And now we had, you know, another family member to support. So it was a time of acute stress in a country that I had lived in before, but is a stressful place for me to live because I just don't know all the ways, all the culture, everything is new to me. It, it was, it was tough for me. It's not like going on vacation to another country. So it was enormously stressful. What I saw in my family was his mother had taken care of everyone. She had raised her children. She had raised her grandchildren. And now in her time of need in her late eighties, when she was physically vulnerable, nobody was taking care of her and nobody was willing to do it. Like we eventually were willing to do it. But before that, nobody was willing to do it. All the people that she had raised and loved and cared for and foregone income for, right? She didn't work outside the home because she was in the home taking care of multiple generations, including her own elderly parents. There was a time where she was taking care of her elderly parents who had dementia and a newborn grandchild. And nobody was there for her. And in the meantime, people had exploited her in our family and like converted her house and the, the land that she owned into their names and emptied out her bank account. So like completely financially abused her. So now what resources she did have because she inherited them were gone. So I looked at this, I'm like, this is actually how patriarchy works, right? She was a resource within the family. She took care of everyone. And then what resources she had, and she didn't have them because she worked outside the home. She had them because she inherited them from her parents were then plundered by family members. And it was by an adult male, the oldest male in the family, right? So everyone put their trust in him. He was supposed to be the patriarch and leader and he converted all of the resources into his name and abused and abandoned the elders in need. And it wasn't just her, it was also her sister, another auntie in the family. So all the elderly women put their trust in him as the patriarch and he took all their stuff and they were left penniless, vulnerable, ill alone. And I looked at this and like, this is exactly the system working as it's supposed to, where women are resources to make men wealthy mm -hmm. and are not owed the care that they provide. And I looked at this and like, this is also the story of my family where women do everything to take care of everyone. And when they are alone and old and vulnerable or need help, they don't have what they need to get by. And I was like, this cannot be my future. This cannot be the future of our children. This cannot be the future of our communities. This has to stop. It's not like that I single-handedly can stop it, but I'm no longer going to donate my life to this cause of patriarchy and, you know, treating women as resources to be plundered. And, I, and so it was just so stark and in my face. And I just came to this thing like, no, like we have to, women as a community, people who've been socialized as girls and women, people who have been systematically and systemically withheld resources from, we need to interrupt this and we don't need to suffer anymore. So that's why I'm saying it's so important to me that we flourish right now, not in some hypothetical future. We have to flourish right now. We have suffered enough. The generations before us have suffered enough. We need to flourish right now. But 
we need to do it without downloading our oppression onto our audiences, our clients, and our community members. So this is like the fire in why I want us to pursue money and justice. We need to stop suffering, start flourishing, and start building practices that promote the flourishing of everyone. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is a big reason I think why your work has felt so powerful to me is I've often found myself feeling like, and this is something I still struggle with, feeling like if I don't have money, then I'm in solidarity in some way, then I'm not as complicit in some way in harm, that like not having money is something yeah, something that like absolves me of something or something that is good. And it's, it's just not like none of that is true. Um, and thinking about like my money lineage from what you've shared has been really helpful for working with that. Cause I have similar stories, generations of people whose labor was exploited under capitalism, who came to this country as indentured servants and were poor and poor and poor. And for the women in my family, almost all of them that I know of worked underpaid, undervalued, not paid at all in the home, had no money or power of their own. Um, and in that way, it feels so important, like just what you said, for me to break that and to make money and to, yeah, to help us all flourish because that never happened for the women in my family. So something that happened for me in 2018 and 2019, um, I came back from Trinidad because my two oldest daughters have a father who is not my partner um, and their dad and I were in a custody battle. So I needed to come back to Canada and settle that custody issue that had honestly been going on for 12 years. And I settled it because I finally had the money after 12 years to hire a lawyer because my business was doing well. And it was so like on my heart that I could finally afford a lawyer. And I felt like that I had been abused for 12 years through the legal system because I couldn't afford a lawyer to advocate for me. And so I was just getting dragged through the courts for years or avoiding going to the courts because I didn't have the resources to advocate for myself. So when I finally had the resources to hire a lawyer and settled it and won, it was like, oh my gosh, it's over. After 12 years of feeling under threat and under siege, it's over because I had the resources to advocate for myself and my daughters by hiring a shark of a lawyer, right? And that is huge to me. And it just solidified this whole thing that was going on in my head around my mother-in-law, which is like, I need to have resources to protect myself and my loved ones. And this is the crime of patriarchy and capitalism is that it makes sure that we don't have the resources to protect ourselves and we are at the mercy of those systems. And it's really important to me that we are no longer at the mercy of these systems. So me building financial power is what allowed me to end a 12 year cycle of legal abuse. Mm. And that's, that's why I, it's not that I love money, but I really respect it. I really respect what money can do in terms of offering protection. It's not a fail safe, even rich people get exploited by systems, right? But it is a really important resource to have in our communities, especially in our exploited and oppressed communities. So that's why it's important to me to build money and why I feel no shame and no guilt about it. Anyone who wants to shame or guilt me about money is trying to 
make me complicit in my own oppression. I know that money helps me protect my loved ones in a system that wants them not to have enough resources. And I know that money, I can keep it in circulation. I can circulate it in my communities. Whatever I have that I don't need, I can hire someone, I can give it away, I can make donations, I can keep it in circulation. I always think that money, another word for money is currency. And it's supposed to be, it's a current, it's supposed to be in flow. So that's how I think about it. I know what I need to thrive and my number is high. I have a gazillion children, like I said, <laughs> and I support two households, one in Trinidad, one in Canada. So I have a high number of what I need to thrive. And I, once I hit that number though, I'll coach for free. Once I hit that number, whatever I have, I will give it away, right? Like I, once I hit the number that I need to personally thrive and protect myself and my family, then I can keep everything else in flow. So I don't need to feel any shame. I'm not out here hoarding enough money to buy an island, right? Like this is not about yeah. capitalist accumulation. This is about how do we make sure that we can eat, that we have security, that we have um, retirement funds so that we don't get financially exploited and abused in our elder and vulnerable years. Yeah. And I'm just thinking like, why is it better for like Jeff Bezos and all those people to have all of the money rather than us have like an amount that we need to thrive and support our communities and what you said, let money be in flow. Like, of course that should happen. Of course that's good for society and community and us and our families. Thank you for well, sharing that. Well, and I think what you just pointed out, the Jeff Bezos thing, that was actually like the demon in my head. <laughs> and that. Like hoarding and accumulation, yeah. that is the logic of capitalism. You hoard and accumulate capital. You take it out of flow. You take it yeah. out of the community, right? And the only way you can get it is by underpaying people for the actual value that they're creating. So the opposite of that is us in community keeping our resources in flow mm. and not ac accumulating and not hoarding. And I do think we need to accumulate enough to be safe though. Like I do think we need savings accounts because we live in systems where our social safety nets are being er eroded. I do think that we need future and <laughs> money for illnesses and emergencies. And when we're no longer able to generate you know, regular income. I do think we need money for those things. And I'm not saying that we are bad if we don't have them because I'm only now at the age of 47 having a bank account that has savings in it for the first time in my life. And I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and it's like, we have so much money shame where we're not allowed to admit how hard it's been for us. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this feels like a good time to ask you about what are some of the business practices that you see, not necessarily, we know like Amazon is exploitative, all that, but like in these spaces of like coaching industry and wellness industry and, and what are like practices that you're using in your business to create justice and not download your oppression on other people? So the biggest one for me is around payment plans. It is the norm in coaching and empowerment and business spaces to charge 25% extra for people who access payment plans. So let's say you're a coach and your program costs $5,000. It is routine if someone can't pay in full to then charge them an extra 20, 25, sometimes even 30% to access a payment plan. And I think that is downloading oppression onto the people least able to pay, literally. 
least able to pay. So that is a big no-no for me. And what I do think is, is okay, though, is to know what it actually costs you to offer payment plans. So if you are paying out in either your time or other people's time to manage payment plans each month, if there is a risk of default, you've seen over the years that 5 or 10% of people default, then you use those actual numbers to say, oh, you know what, it costs me 8% every year to offer a payment plan. And so I'm going to charge 8% for a payment plan, or I'm going to take that 8% and build that into my overhead and spread it out across all my plans. And nobody pays extra for payment plans, but it's built into my overhead. And I think about that, like when I go to a corner store, it really irritates me when they charge me $1.25 to use my debit card. I feel like that is the cost of doing business and it should be built into the price of every piece of gum and soda in that store. And that's what I think about payment plans. So that's what I do. I build the cost that it costs me to carry payment plans into my overhead and spread it across everything. So nobody who accesses a payment plan is being penalized for accessing the payment plan because they're not paying extra. So, but I do think there's two ways to approach it. One is you, you put the actual surcharge that it costs you in the payment plan and people can pay that or you put it into your overhead and spread it across everybody. But that's like one of the practices that I really object to that's common mainstream in our, in our spaces. The other thing that I object to, and I think we can do differently is around scarcity. So we talked about scarcity in our histories for me as a woman who is one generation out of poverty Scarcity is my historical reality. It's in my DNA and it's in my adult life too, right? Like I am only two or three years out of scarcity and to leverage scarcity to get me to buy things is to leverage trauma against me, to leverage my own trauma, historical and present against me. And I just find that to be enormously abusive. So I really object to us leveraging scarcity to get people to buy things. And there's some scarcity, I guess that's legitimate. If you have a class that starts on Monday, you have to close the cart on Saturday in order to like get it all together and launch the class. That's a real limit, right? So communicating that, hey, cart closes on Saturday because we start Monday. That's not leveraging scarcity to get someone to buy something that's communicating accurately and getting people the information they need to make an informed decision. But to leverage scarcity and say with a countdown timer that this PDF is going away in 24 hours when it's not, there's no actual scarcity on it. It can be replicated in infinitely. Like that is to me a, a form of leveraging trauma and abuse. So I think we have to be very careful about how we use scarcity. If it's legitimate scarcity, we communicate it so people can make correct decisions for themselves. But if it's not, if it's fake scarcity, if we are just arbitrarily creating urgency to get someone to buy, we need to back off of that because that is abusive. Mm. And so I'm not saying there's like hard and fast rules. I'm saying we have to navigate it and really look at the impact we're having on the people who we care about. Our, our audiences and our clients are people we care about. What's the impact we're going to have on them if we use these triggers? So we have to be really careful about some of the mainstream business practices because they create trauma, they leverage trauma, and they create impacts on people that we are not desiring to create. Yeah. And what about the role of 
performance that you were talking about in the kind of like female lifestyle empowerment brand. What about that and how we have to like look and show up in that way? So not all performance is bad, right? Like performance can be super delightful for those of us who are artists and extroverts and, you know, actors and musicians, like performance can be a generative, beautiful thing, but we can't be performing all the time. And what I see the female lifestyle empowerment brand doing is asking us to perform all the time and to perform a socially acceptable version of ourselves. And for women, I'm a woman. So for women and people who've been socialized as girls and women, usually that means that we have to show up in a super femme package. We have to be highly stylized. We have to look feminine. We have to look a certain kind of way. And those beauty standards that we have to perform are the first condition of success. Like, yes, you can be successful and you can have money and be successful in your career, but first you must be pretty. And pretty is a white definition of pretty. Pretty is you shall be thin, you shall be white, you shall be young, you shall be, you know, heterosexy, but not too sexy. Like you will be smiling, you will be pleasant, you will be agreeable, you will be likable. There are all these, you will be able-bodied. You know, there are all these things and all of those things are markers of dominant status. So yes, you're allowed to be successful as long as you first embody a privileged identity. So being forced to perform that thing is a fundamental restriction and an embodiment of privilege. Like it's not fair or just to expect us to be that. And most of us cannot be that thing, right? Like if you are a fat woman, you cannot perform that thing. If you are a black woman, you cannot perform that thing. If you are a queer or visibly butch woman, you cannot perform that thing. So that if that's the only avenue permitted to us for success, a whole lot of us are fundamentally excluded from it. So I'm not blaming people for being professionally pretty, right? (laughs) I am saying that holding out to us that this is the success strategy, that if we do what you do, we can be successful means that 90% 90 of us can't be successful. Mm -hmm. So it's important to me that we figure out how to be visible for our work rather than visible for a privileged identity. And lifestyle marketing asks us to market our privilege. It asks us to show vacations, to show pretty white skin, to show thinness, to show heterosexuality. It asks us to show us the markers of privileged lifestyle. What I want us to do instead is to show what life really looks like show up as ourselves. I, it's important to me in my Instagram feed to show up as a fat white woman, right? To show up as, and take up space and look at a certain kind of way that is not um, what you see in the mainstream to create space for other people who look like me. And it's also important to me that I talk about my ideas. My work is my ideas. So I just lead with my work and it can be done right? Like this year has been my most successful year ever. I've doubled my income and all I do is show up and talk about my work. Yeah. I think you're such an incredible example of that, of how being transparent about your practices and your business and the work that you do is inspiring for other people and is the opposite of all of that exploitation and the false scarcity and all of that stuff. Like I've appreciated so much. I feel like just the honesty that you bring to your work. It's like, this is what I'm doing. These are my practices. This is why I'm doing them. And 
if you're in alignment with that, then it's probably great for us to work together. And if not, then probably not. And I really appreciate that and have learned a lot from that, definitely. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I also don't want to hold myself up as though I'm on a pedestal because none of us have been born into a culture of justice. So this is a process for all of us. We have to unlearn the unjust voices in our head and experiment with new practices. And it really is like a grand experimentation. I didn't just like wake up knowing, okay, here are they like 14 practices I'm going to put in my business. I experimented my way there because I objected to other things. And since I objected to that thing, I was like, well, I'm going to have to replace it with something else. So scarcity, for example, I objected to leveraging scarcity. I thought it was an abuse of trauma and it was literally leveraging oppression to sell your shit, right? Like that's what I thought it was. So I was like, okay, if I don't use scarcity, my conversion rates are going to go down. I still need to make the same amount of money. So how, if my, if I'm not going to use scarcity and my conversion rates are going to go down, how do I keep my sales the same? And for me, I looked at that and like, I have to have a bigger audience. So I have to be more comfortable getting visible. I have to market more. I have to expand my brand and my awareness and my visibility. And I have to be more visible. If I increase my audience, even if my conversion rate goes down, which actually it didn't, but even if my conversion rate goes down, I will still end up with the same number of sales or more. So I created abundance on one side of the formula to compensate for where I was going to have a reduction in conversion. So whatever you want to get rid of that you object to, you just look at it and you're like, okay, so how do I flip it? How do I do something else that replaces this thing? And you experiment and you might not get it right, right out of the gate or you embed yourself in a community and share practices amongst each other. And someone will say, well, I tried this and it worked. You're like, cool, let me try. So this is just a grand experimentation and iteration across an, a community. It's not just me, right? We share ideas, we try things out, and then we loop back and tell the people how we did. Yeah. I really appreciate the idea in my own work of kind of approaching it as play and bringing a curiosity to it. And like, let's just see, let's see how it goes. Let's see what feels good. Let's see what works. Um, but something else that I have to ask you about, and you probably figured this question was coming, but <laughs> about creating affordability and accessibility in our work. I know that's something I care about. I think everyone listening to this podcast who has a business cares about that too. And how, like, what does that mean to you to balance those things, needing to get paid to flourish, sometimes a lot to thrive and yeah, creating accessibility. So what I used to do and what I don't recommend doing is um, overworking to create accessibility. So what I used to do was like work seven days a week and so that I could help as many people as possible, keep my rates low as possible, do a lot of pro bono stuff. And what that meant was I was doing so much pro bono and so much free stuff that I wasn't billing enough to make my own overhead. So I ended up having to expand my work hours so that I could accomplish, you know, paying my bills and also being accessible. So what we usually do in our communities is overwork to fill the gap. And I, I want us, and unless we have a specific accessibility strategy, that is what we, the loop we will fall into, which is overwork. So I don't want us to do that. You and I started this conversation talking about how important it was to flourish and be in sustainable relationship with work. So it is not okay for us to fill in the gap with our labor. The need is huge. We will be extinguished. So there is a, a friend and a 
a colleague of mine, Lilia Grau, Dr. Lilia Grau, um, she lives in Mexico City. She's a physician and works around the space of fat acceptance of bo and body positivity. And she said something to me that I have never forgotten. She said, accessibility first has to start with making sure that we are resourced. And so the way I translate that is, if the feminist running the business isn't flourishing, then it's not a feminist business. The first principle for me is we shall flourish. But again, that's not at the expense of everyone else. It's in relationship with our communities. So what I'm trying to say is we are not going to suffer in order to create accessibility because that's the system working as it should, downloading all the oppression onto us. So what I think we should do is be explicit, develop accessibility strategies around our flourishing. The flourishing is non-negotiable. So I have a thriving number that goes to Toy Smith, a dear friend and colleague of mine. She says that we have to figure out what our number is every month that we need to thrive and make sure we hit that. So I have that. I have a thriving number I have to hit. And then on top of that, I give away a certain percent of stuff. So once I hit my thriving number, I can give away things for free. So there was a time in 2018 where I had a corporate contract that was paying me between 10 and $15,000 a month, which was close to my thriving number. So as soon as I hit my thriving number, I just coached for free, right? I had a corporate contract. I could coach for free on top of that. I had time. I was fine. So another way that I organize myself currently is for every three full paying coaching clients that I bring on, I take a fourth for free because I've built an extra into the full paying that compensates for the fourth one. It's the way lawyers work too with pro bono work. They'll work four days you know, at full price and the fifth day for free because that fifth day is already built into their regular fee structure. Um, so that's what one of the ways that I do it. Another way I do that in my group programs is I give away 20% of my slots for free as soon as I hit my revenue targets. So let's say I'm running a program and I need 30 people in order to hit my thriving number. Once I hit the thriving number, then I add six spaces for free. But I, the thriving is non-negotiable. I have to hit that thriving number. So I cannot like appropriate my billing time for accessibility, but I can build accessibility into my overall sustainability and thriving number. So everyone's way of approaching that is going to be different. And my different approaches are different based on what my circumstances are. They shift. Like I just showed you in 2018, they were this, currently they're this because my financial business model changed, but I build accessibility into my time model and into my business model. And another thing we can do that around accessibility is um, have some low priced offers, some group offers. Another thing we can do with accessibility is um, put a lot of free content out that people can learn from. I know that I didn't have a coach for like seven years because I couldn't afford one, but I learned how to do things from other people's free content. And then when it came time and I had resources, of course I hired a coach, but there's a lot of stuff we can do when we don't have money if other people are putting out useful free resources. So that can be part of our accessibility strategy too, is to put out a lot of free resources. And that doesn't degrade our paid offerings. So I put a lot of feminist marketing tools out that teach you how to do certain things, how to implement certain business practices in your business. It's the same stuff that I teach in my and go through it piece by piece. So there's still a value to my paid offering because I'm bundling it up and delivering it and curating it. So giving away stuff for free doesn't degrade our paid offers. 
Yeah, thank you so much for breaking that down. And also just a shout out, your money and justice class that's free on your website is great. And I learned a lot from that. You have amazing free content that I've really learned a lot from. Um, and just thank you so much for being here and everything that you shared. I think, yeah, this is a topic that a lot of people are stressed about and afraid to talk about. And it can feel scary, especially when we have anti-capitalist and feminist politics it's like well how can we also talk about wanting to make money and I feel like you have just shared so much about that that's like well they're really important and interconnected um, okay. well Toy and I've talked about this Toy and Smith and I've talked about this a lot <laughs> sorry having a, a doing business is not the same thing as promoting capitalism so like let's unhook business from capitalism people have always traded right? Like people have always made bread, sold bread, you know, gone down the street to buy milk, like that kind of thing has always existed. And it doesn't necessarily exist around money, but those kinds of trades have always happened. That is not the same thing as capitalism. So me selling consulting services to someone who, you know, runs a bakery, <laughs> that's not us accumulating enough money to buy islands. That's not Bezos capital. <laughs> right we are not hoarding resources we are keeping money in flow in our communities so doing business is not the same thing as doing capitalism as long as we build those sustainability and accessibility and feminist and anti-oppressive business practices into our projects yeah absolutely and i think to me, it's like humans naturally want to create, we want to show up and share our gifts with the world. And it's so beautiful when we also get to be compensated for that and be able to help everybody thrive through doing that. Because I think, yeah, that's like naturally what we want to do. I also think that's what life is about. Like we are here to flourish. Yeah. And to me, feminist and anti-oppressive practices promote human flourishing. So that's how I want to lead my life. And that's the impact that I want to leave behind. Yeah, me too, me yeah. too. <laughs> yes, let's build a future in which we all flourish and let's start right now. There's no need to suffer to do that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't wanna let you go, but <laughs> it's time. So can you please tell everyone where they can find you and anything that you have going on right now that you think people might like to know about? I would love to. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you to everyone listening. I so appreciate your time and attention. I can be found at kellydeals.com. It's D-I-E-L-S.com. I do have a free money and justice workshop that you can download on my website. And I have an annual mastermind called Flora, which is named after my great grandmother. And Flor is also the root of flourish, right? And that's what I want us to do. So I have an annual mastermind. It starts in January um, called Flourish, where we build money and justice. We build businesses that build money and justice in our lives and in our communities. So that's what I have going on right now. And I so appreciate this time with you, Erin, and with yeah. everyone who's listening. Thank you for inviting me here. Thank you for being here. I hope you learned something new. I hope maybe this conversation helped you start to think about some things that you might like to lean into doing differently. Um, or yeah, maybe just gave you permission to do some things differently that are kind of outside of what we're taught is like, here's how to have a business. Here's how to market a business. Um, 
but to yeah create a business that's really aligned with your values and like Kelly says not downloading oppression onto everyone so if you loved this episode please do tap five stars and leave a review wherever you're listening it's a really nice way to be in exchange with the show and to support an indie podcast it is just me over here (laughs) so i really appreciate your ratings and reviews and yeah if you um, really resonated with this episode feel free to share on instagram what you connected with or what it made you think about i love to see that stuff i'm sure kelly would enjoy seeing it too um so you can tag either of us both of us our instagrams are both in the description but yeah i'll be back on monday with another episode it'll be our aquarius season medicine episode of the podcast so stay tuned for that and stay in touch on instagram at e-r-y-n-j underscore or patreon until then